welcome to another episode of South Asian Stories, where we hear from South Asians around the world and uncover their identities, successes, failures, and most importantly, stories. I'm your host, Samir Desai. In this episode, I chat with Dr. Hassini Jayatilaka. Hassini grew up in Colombo, Sri Lanka, and pursued her BS and PhD in chemical and biomecular engineering at Johns Hopkins University. At the ripe old age of 28, she made the 2018 Forbes 30 under 30 list for the science category for her extraordinary work. Hassini discovered a signaling pathway that controls how cancer cells spread through the body and a way to block the pathway. This has led to the development of new therapeutics currently moving through the pipeline aimed at targeting tumor growth and metastasis. She currently is a postdoctoral fellow at Stanford studying childhood leukemia. So in this wide-ranging conversation, we discuss Hassini's childhood growing up in Sri Lanka during the Civil War, the incredible story behind her groundbreaking research on cancer cells as a sophomore, just a sophomore at Johns Hopkins, where the future of cancer therapy is going in the next 10 to 15 years, and how to deal with the imposter syndrome, something that many people deal with, and how to believe in yourself. So please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Dr. Hassini Jayatilaka. Hassani, welcome to South Asian Stories. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be on your show. So I'd love to start with um, your background, because I I know you grew up in Sri Lanka, and you know, because this is a South Asian-oriented podcast, um, can you tell us a little bit of what your childhood was like and what it was like growing up? Um, Yeah, so I grew up in Sri Lanka, uh, basically when the civil war was um, happening. And for me, it was sort of like a very normal thing growing up where, um, you know, once in a while, you'd have a suicide bomber sort of set off a bomb randomly around the city. Um, So when people ask me, oh, how was it like growing up in Sri Lanka? I'm just like, it was very normal. Like we had a very normal childhood. It was very fun. Like, Uh, My parents and I used to travel and all that. Uh, But I know that on the flip side, there is this aspect that I actually grew up in Sri Lanka during the Civil War, during the peak of the Civil War. And there are some aspects to my childhood which kind of weren't normal. Um, But I mean, overall, I had a great childhood. And, um, you know, I don't think anybody sort of expected me to have this sort of career trajectory that I have now because I think I was a very normal annoying child (laughs) (laughs) and did you come from a big family um my parents come from big families uh I so we always had like cousins around but I um I, I only have one brother got it got it and talk to us a little bit about those non-normal parts of your childhood i'm curious to know what that was like i mean so i so i grew up in the city of colombo which there was uh, there were a lot of security forces just like guarding the city uh simply because um uh, i guess um the terrorists at that time would target specific uh places in the city and so, you know, going from point A to point B, you could be stopped at a security checkpoint with like armed uh, security personnel just standing there, you know, waiting for a threat. Um, and in one particular instance, I remember there was a, a, a bomb that went off maybe less than a mile away from maybe half a mile away from wow. my house. 
So yeah, there and there there have been times that there there have been close calls, but I think all Sri Lankans can say that where they've been in a situation where there was a close call where they almost uh, got caught to uh, a bomb attack. Yeah, man, that must have been a little bit scary having it half a mile away from your place. But it seems like you've taken everything in stride and. And that, you know, you said that you just came back from Sri Lanka this, this year. Or so, um, I, th- it, it sounds like it's a very important part of your identity. Would you say that? Yeah. I mean, I think growing being Sri Lankan is an important part of my identity because, you know, I, I spent more than half my life there. Uh, my parents are Sri Lankan, like, you know, that's the culture I'm used to. Um, so yeah, it is a very important part of my identity and I don't think that's something I take for granted. Yeah, no, that's great. And then what brought you to, uh, the U S was it, um, going to college or what, what was the impetus of bringing you over here? Yes, it was going to college. My parents from a very young age, I guess, always told me that I needed to go to college. That was, I think, one of their requirements uh, for their children. And uh, initially, my brother and I were planning on going to Australia um, because my parents had lived in Australia before. And then my brother decided that he actually wanted to come to the U.S. uh, to study And so since my brother came to college here, my parents were sort of like, well, you should go and you should join him and you should you should live in America. (laughs) And so that's how I ended up here. It really wasn't a plan for me to sort of come here, but just ended up here. So you followed your brother to the U.S. and then I understand you went to John Hopkins. Is that correct? Yes, I uh, did my undergraduate and my graduate degree at Johns Hopkins University. Got it. How did you like it? I liked it a lot. I think for me coming in, I sort of had this expectation of, you know, what the academics would be like, but I had no idea what the life would be like. And I never visited any colleges, you know, beforehand, like a lot of kids here do. So I was just sort of in this mindset of, you know, I have to adapt to sort of whatever is thrown at me. And um, I really liked it. I was able to build really good relationships. Obviously, I was able to do a lot of good work. And I think for me, it was sort of the ideal place for me to be in. That's awesome. And Hasani, talk to us about your experience um, getting into research. I'd love to hear the story behind what piqued your interest and how did you first get involved? So Johns Hopkins is a very research-oriented institution. I think it's one of the top research institutions in the nation. And sort of the undergraduate culture that we have is that, you know, at some point in our undergraduate careers, we have to do research. Um, And it's uh, for my program, at least, which was chemical and biomolecular engineering, it was sort of a requirement. And so when I was going through all sort of the research topics that I could pursue, cancer was something that particularly hit me because at that point I was thinking, oh, do I want to go to med school? Do I want to do something more in, you know, the research realm and what really piques my interest? And it was cancer because I'm sure like everybody else, um, my life has also been affected by cancer where I've had a 
loved one who has had cancer. Mm-hmm. And so while I was thinking about it, um, I saw my uh, previous uh, boss present at one of my freshman seminars, and he spoke with such enthusiasm and passion. I don't think I necessarily understood everything he was explaining to us, <laughs> but I just I just knew I wanted to work with somebody who was just so passionate and enthusiastic. And so, um, and then I just emailed him and I then went and met him and I was like, I really want to learn from you and I want to do research with you. And I think at that point I had maybe thought I'll do it for a semester or two, but no more. Uh, But once I started in the lab, you know, it really sucked me in. I was just so um, interested in everything that was sort of going on. It really piqued my curiosity and so I ended up staying in that lab for three years until yeah. I graduated, basically. Yeah. And for the people listening, right, most people have heard that at universities like John Hopkins and other research universities, um, you know, these kind of things are are happen all the time. But most people don't know what research actually entails at the college level, you know, uh, college level, u- university level, because I know from my experience, like, you know, I'm, I'm not in the sciences, but I, I, of course, did my fifth grade science project and my fourth grade science project. Um, can you talk us a little bit through, like, what that process is like doing research at a, you know, academic university like Johns Hopkins? Well, when I started off, it was I did very simple things like, you know, keep cells alive, uh, which is sort of like the most basic thing I think a researcher can do. And if you can't keep cells alive, then you're probably not cut out to be in uh, the field of uh, uh, biological sciences, at least in that aspect of research. Uh, But then I started off, you know, with simple things like reading papers and learning about what work was out there and learning about how people were sort of, you know, asking these particular questions and answering them with experiments and learning how to design an experiment and so on. Um, And then it was like little like, you know, menial like computer work where I would have to, you know, uh, go through movies of cells moving and just, you know, make certain observations. And then, you know, as I sort of gained the trust of uh, my superiors, then I was sort of allowed to do more complex experiments uh, with cells and, you know, um, with uh, big, fancy, fancy microscopes that cost like more than a Lamborghini. And we could probably sell them and buy a Lamborghini. That was my big joke. Uh, when my professor is not looking, I would sell all the microscopes and buy myself a Lamborghini. Nice. Um, um, so, yeah, I mean, it's it's a progression. And I think every lab is sort of different in terms of how, uh, you know, they approach their science. Uh, for me, it was sort of, uh, doing these uh, experiments with the cells and then imaging imaging them using these microscopes and then looking at the videos that we generated more closely and sort of uh, coming up uh, with sort of the answers to the questions that we were asking. Yeah, that's a, that's a great overview. And I'm curious, your interest in cancer combined with your interest in research, you know, I was reading online extensively and it looked like the inklings of your idea of, um, you know, what you base your research for the, for the next few years was developed as a sophomore in college. I mean, that's that's crazy young for for someone to have that kind of idea spark 
Um, can you talk a little bit about that story or that process of you coming to the hypothesis as a sophomore about the cancer cells? Yeah, so I had just started working in the lab, um, probably like three or four months into it. And, you know, just getting the hang of things. And I was looking at mostly like videos of how the cells move in this uh, 3D collagen one matrix, which is basically this uh, jelly sort of substance that stimulates sort of the conditions in our body. And, you know, when you're in a research lab for almost six, seven hours a day, just kind of looking at these cells over and over again, it's kind of ingrained in your mind. At least that's how I like to think about it. (laughs) And so when I had to go for like a a class requirement, which was going to the seminar conducted by Dr. Bonnie Baisler from Princeton University, and she was talking about, oh, how her cells move, how her cells communicate. And she was talking about bacterial cells. And then I was like, hold on, hold on. She can't be talking about bacterial cells because I see this in my cells every day. And uh, so then I went back and I was like, hey, don't we see this? And they were just like, yeah, we kind of see it, but I don't know if it's necessarily true. And so I went and I looked at the literature and basically there was nothing about it um, out there. And so I went up to my boss who was, you know, who was very supportive and he was like, okay, do you, do you, can you ask this question in a proper scientific manner and how can you test it? And so design your experiments and prove to me that you can see something. So he basically was like, do preliminary experiments. And so that was what I did. And yeah, that was sophomore year of college. So when your professor says, hey, Hassani, go for it and do it if you have the right science experiment and, you know, if you can prove it. What was going through your head where you're like, oh, gosh, this is real. I need to now buckle down and, and uh, you know, do a lot more work. What was going through your head? I was just really excited because I was like, oh, I'm excited to see if this will actually work or not. Sure, So I sure. think even even now as a scientist, you know, you come up with these crazy ideas and you hope that it works because a lot of times these questions that you ask, they fail because, you know, the cells or, you know, whatever you're looking at, it just doesn't happen in them. And so, you know, just the, I think the idea of just designing the experiment and running the experiment sort of gets my adrenaline pumping. Um, <laughs> and then obviously seeing a positive result is great. And if we don't see a positive result, it's like, okay, well, what's the next question we can ask? But I think at that point, I was just really excited. And I believed in it. I believed in um, sort of the idea, the concept. I knew it was real. And uh, I don't think I had any, you know, inklings of what I would do when I would fail because I was just so confident. And I wish I had that confidence now, but I know way too much now. <laughs> right. It's almost like uh, when you're the, the the new kid on the block or the new person and you're kind of looking at things with fresh eyes, you're just like, anything can be done. And, yes. you know, that's the, that's the mindset that you had. And so, so walk me through what happened next that you started, okay, let me, this is a, this is an idea that I have that's formed my mind. Let me put together a, a proposal, research proposal behind this. Um, what did you do next? How did you attack it? Well, then it was just a matter of doing experiment after experiment and sort of generating preliminary data. And that took uh, a little bit of time. But by the time I had come to my senior year, um, you know, sort of, I think 
probably figure one and figure two of the paper that came out in Nature Communications was sort of uh, formed. And so at that point, my professor was like, well, you know, you have this story. What do you want to do? Do you want to stay on and finish it? Or do you want to, you know, hand it off? And I was like, well, this is my baby. And um, so at that point, I decided that I would uh, go ahead and do a PhD based on this idea that I had come up with as a sophomore in college. And so then um, going into the PhD program, obviously I had to take classes, but also simultaneously uh, do these experiments uh, with not only in my lab, but I also went to Yale University to collaborate with Dr. Rong Fang. And it was just one experiment after the other. It was just sort of this progression and learning new techniques and um, sort of, I think, two, two and a half years after I started my PhD, you know, we had sort of the story complete and we were ready to put it out there into the world and see what the response was. And uh, yeah, and then after it got published a year later, it actually took a year to publish because that's how long it takes to publish like um, journal articles. Now it's, it's just been a crazy ride. I don't think at the time when we were sort of, you know, doing um the the work we really thought it would have like this like the reception it's gotten right, um so right. yeah cuz you're you're in that mode where you're just like you know i like you're focusing on the thing right in front of you instead of thinking of the implications down the line you're obviously thinking about the bigger picture but not thinking about how is this going to be received and how are people going to react to it that's not yeah. something academics really think about Right, right. And I want to uh, talk a little bit about from getting from, you know, the idea as a sophomore to three, four, five years later when you actually actually published, did you run into any obstacles or run to any low moments where you're like, I don't know if this is going to work or I don't know if this is going to prove out the way I thought it. Was there any moments like that you can describe? Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean academia is hard and you know there are a lot of challenges and roadblocks that I face on this journey and still today I face them uh you know from you know your experimental design not working out or when you're at this crucial point like something breaks like something always breaks right when you actually need it to be done like tomorrow the machine breaks or something like that the Lamborghini Um, machine (laughs) the Lamborghini machine did fail on me a couple of times and I was just like oh are you serious right Uh, but yeah so there are like challenges like that I faced and also you know like pursuing a PhD is hard and I did go through my own personal struggles of you know is this worth it is it worth me like killing myself to get these experiments done is it worth me sort of putting my entire life on hold and sort of sacrificing everything for this one thing um so there were you know challenges I when I when I when people ask me about challenges I usually say no not really because I think about the bigger challenges that people face like discrimination and sexism and so on and I was fortunate enough not to face any of those but you know in terms of my journey I've had struggles um, you know smaller struggles um which have really like I think affected me and have you know shaped my uh sort of the person I've become today and uh, the academic I've become and hoping to become in the future. Right. No, I I can imagine. 
how long and how much uh, confidence you had to have in yourself and the project to say, hey, this is going to work. I just got to keep pushing. But I'd love to touch on some of those sacrifices you made. You said you had to sacrifice everything to to make this project a reality. What were some of those things you had to sacrifice to be successful? I mean, uh, there was a lot of sleep. you know sacrificing <laughs> sleep. Yes, sleep was one thing, but I, I think you can always catch up on sleep with the sleep with a good afternoon nap. Right. Uh, but um, you know, like you know, time away from my family and spending time with my friends, and you know, sometimes you know having to travel when I really want to be somewhere else. Um, you know, the, those are person. I think personal sacrifices that I had to make um, in order to put the job first, put the work first, and you know, really make this project a success. Yeah. Um, luckily, I mean, I think I I don't have sort of the horror stories that some of the other PhD students have. Uh, because my boss was very nice to me. He was very understanding. And I think the pressures that I sort of put on myself were put on, put from other people other than Mm -hmm. him. I Mm -hmm. mean, there were people that I had to work with who were really difficult and who would make my life a living hell. And it was sort of navigating that also. That was sort of a challenge. Uh, But, you know, at the end of the day, I've learned really good lessons from dealing with those situations. And I think I'm a stronger person and a stronger academic, which I think you have to be a strong academic if you're going to survive in this academic culture. And, uh, you know, I've come out better for it. Yeah, no, that is an amazing journey. And congratulations on on, on such success with the the paper and and all that you've done, man. It's very, very commendable. Um, Thank you. I'd love to chat a little bit about your re- the actual research, right? You know, as you mentioned before, many people have had family members and friends that have struggled with cancer, and you know, I, I know personally for me, my wife's father struggled with uh, with breast cancer, and so it's been very close to to my family's heart and something we had to deal with. What have you? What would you say if people ask you? Um, what what do people not know about cancer that may not be readily like knowledgeable or or something that they can't read online is there something that you can share that what people may not know about cancer that that you found surprising or that you learned through this process i mean i think what i've learned about cancer is that it's an extremely smart disease And I Mm -hmm. think that's one of the reasons we've sort of battled it for so long. And that's one of the reasons why there is no one cure. And I think you, for instance, if you talk about breast cancer, you can say, you know, there's no one type of breast cancer. There are multiple types of breast cancer. And within those types of breast cancers, you know, each person has sort of a unique signature. And so that's why there's sort of this push towards like precision medicine, where people are talking about personalizing you know, uh, therapeutics for cancer patients, just because everybody's um, tumor is sort of unique to them. Mm. Um, So if you and I have sort of the same type of cancer, the treatments that you respond to would be very different from the treatments that I would respond to. Um, So I don't, so I don't think people really know how smart this disease is. Um, and I don't think people really understand the complexities behind it. You know, they think of it as, 
um, like any other disease, you know, for instance, if you if you told somebody you had cholesterol, everyone would be like, okay, well, I have cholesterol, you have cholesterol, we're on the same meds, like, cool, like, you know, <laughs> but in, the, in terms of like cancer, that's not sort of the case. Um, and so I think that's why there are so many, I was reading the comment section, which I really shouldn't do. Um, of, of, I think of my TED talk and somebody was like, oh, you know, this is just um, a conspiracy theory. Like, you know, these, uh, these pharmaceutical companies have the cure to cancer and, you know, they're like withholding it because it's such a money making business. And I'm like, that is not true. Like we, you know, we're in the lab, we're studying this disease, like, for instance, now I study uh, childhood leukemia. um, And we have a success rate about 90% in childhood leukemia. Yet for the remaining 10%, we don't understand the disease, we don't understand why we don't have 100% cure. And so we focus on, sorry. So we focus on, you know, like getting, you know, what about the remaining 10%? And so we're trying to understand why that 10% doesn't respond to chemotherapies as they should to as as they should, or why some, um, you know, um, patients are not responding to immunotherapies as they should be. And this is because cancer is like a very complex disease. And tell me why, Hasini, that um, for someone who doesn't have a science background, why, if some, if you had a form of cancer, like uh, you know, you know, any type of cancer, and I have the same type of cancer, why is it that we don't have similar properties between the two? Is it because our own cells are are different, or do we know what the reason is? Well, I think it just comes from sort of sort of the fundamental explanation that, you know, we're all unique. We all have a unique genetic makeup and cancer is, you know, a part of uh, cancer is basically when our cells get mutated and start, start abnormally dividing. And so the cells are actually part of, you know, were a part of our body at some point. And so I think um, the fact that it's unique to each person comes from the fact that, you know, genetic genetically we're all unique got it got it and tell us a little bit about what you discovered uh in your research if you can explain it in simple terms and 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 because it was so and why was it so groundbreaking can you talk to us a little bit about that so what i discovered was basically a new signaling mechanism of how cancer cells communicate uh with each other and spread throughout the body. And uh, this was sort of novel because it sort of looked at how uh, cells spread from one site, which is the primary site, to a distal site. And this is a process known as metastases, and metastases is responsible for 90% of cancer-related deaths. Um, and it is a process that you know we don't directly target with uh, current therapies. Um, current therapies mostly target tumor growth and not necessarily metastases. And so our finding was unique in the way that we sort of separated the two processes out, tumor growth and metastases, and were able to target metastases alone. Wow. Okay. And when you discovered this and you 
finally got confirmation that the your original hypothesis as a sophomore was correct. What was that feeling like? Was it a sense of relief? Was it a sense of excitement? Um, do you remember what that was like? I actually, I I don't remember what it was like, to be honest. I think I was obviously very, very happy. Um, <laughs> I'm sure. You know, like when you go, I think also you, you know, submit an article and then you wait um, for it to either get rejected or to go into review. And then when it comes back from review, you kind of, you know, are nervous about sort of the comments you get. And so during that process, it was just like, okay, well, you know, I'm nervous about the comments I'm going to get. Once I got the comments, it was like, how am I going to address this? And that was like right before I was defending my PhD. So it was sort of, you know, there were a lot of things going on. And then once we resubmitted uh, the journal and uh, the article, and then we were waiting for it to come back. There were a lot of changes in my life in terms of I had just finished my PhD. I was trying to figure out what was sort of next for me. And uh, and then uh, probably a few weeks later, we got an email saying, you know, it's been accepted. And I remember I was um, sitting at uh, my Lamborghini microscope um, <laughs> doing another project. And... Um, my uh, PI, my boss called me up and said, oh, you slacker, what are you up to? I'm looking for you. And I was like, oh, I'm in the microscope room. Sorry, you know, I can come meet you afterwards. And he was like, um, did you check your email? And I was like, no, I haven't. And he was like, we got accepted. And I was like, oh, my God, that's incredible. And um, so I, I remember just like sitting there, I was really happy. And then I sat at, at the microscope and I actually cried. Um, yeah. Because, uh, you know, it was relief. It was, you know, it had been months and months of just, you know, stress and, you know, a lot of things going on. It had, it, it was sort of the positive news I received after like months and months. And so it was, it was a very, very nice feeling. But at the same time, it was sort of bawling my eyes out. Sure. Uh, but then it was, sure. it was pure, it was pure joy after that. And it's, it's been an incredible ride ever since, you know, that acceptance and, I think after it got accepted, I about two or three weeks later, I went uh, to Iceland with my best friend, and we had an amazing time. So that was like a good a, a celebration. A trip you'll never forget. Yes, that was a really good <laughs> celebration that we had. That's amazing, and I can just picture, my, you know, in my head, you in front of that microscope, and just the deep emotion you must be feeling of just the delayed gratification of you working on this and it's finally being published and you're going to see your name um, in this prestigious journal. I mean, man, that's got to be such a cool feeling. And, and, and talk to us a little bit about um, the after effects. Like once it was published, um, did you become like a celebrity in the cancer community or did you, you know, start getting emails from people be, Hey, I read your work. Um, you know, pretty cool what you've discovered. Like what happened after that? So once the work came out, so Hopkins obviously had a press release about it because um, everyone who knew the work was sort of excited about the work. And so they did have a press release. And um, when the press release came out, I was actually in Mexico with my family, um, <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> and uh, I, I just remember waking up in the morning, looking at the press release and I was like, okay, cool. I'm going to post this on Facebook and I'm going to go to the beach and just swim. And, yeah. 
yeah, I came back and it was like I had like a million notifications, a million emails and it, you know, it didn't really hit at that point uh, just because I was on vacation. And when I came back, there were just so many requests to do interviews. You know, the media was very interested. And then I got so many emails from different people who read the work and were like, this is incredible. Um, and also like even non-academics who would just reach out and be like, oh, you know, this is like awesome work. Thank you so much. Like my brother, sister, or like I have a loved one who was affected by it. Thank you for everything that you do. And I was just like, this is insane. Right, um, right. And I think, um, I think um, actually we were featured on the front page of the India Times uh, or Times of India. And it was, yeah, that response like kind of drove the work to sort of get attention from all of Asia. I remember even Sri Lanka noticed it after it appeared on the front page of the Times of India. Um, and so, like, the global response was just incredible. Um, yeah, and it's 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 been a surreal experience since then because then I got offered to do the TED Talk and I got offered to do like all these crazy cool things like be on your podcast and do radio shows and I was like what is this like yeah, this is crazy. who am I <laughs> yeah no and and I think you know I was actually thinking about this before you like doing a podcast as well I was like you know I still have this moment where I feel like an imposter sure. you have that sort of imposter syndrome growing on but you know at the same time I'm sort of enjoying the ride and I'm having fun with it and um, I enjoy hearing from different people about the work um, and you know I feel bad when they reach out to me they're like can we join your clinical trial and I'm like well we're not at that stage yet but you know we'll let you know but it's nice to sort of get feedback from people yeah no that is uh, that is such a, such a cool story I probably seen your your name on uh, the Times of India must have made your parents thrilled. <laughs> look, yeah. look at this. I mean, you they shared with I, all your family. Yeah, they were they were here at that time, so I, so sure. they saw like all the digital content, and then they were like, "Wow, this is actually a big deal! You actually did something over the past <laughs> four years." And I was like, "Yeah." See what I've been trying to tell you. <laughs> Well, I, I don't think anybody really understood sort of like what I was doing. And they were just sure. like, oh, whatever, you know, you know, she's just studying for a PhD. She's just memorizing a bunch of textbooks. Uh, but I don't think anybody really understood um, sort of the work we were doing. And I don't think I understood the work that I was doing or the impact that it was going to have. So I think it was a nice surprise for all of us. Yeah, no, that is a... That is a <laughs> uh, that is a cool moment for sure. I can't I can't imagine yeah. what that felt like. But um, I, you you touched on something, Hassani, that I would love to explore a little bit more because I think it's something that people deal with, men and women, um, a lot. And that's what you said is the imposter syndrome, where you know you're in a room, and I know I felt it before, where I'm like, well, people think I'm a fraud. Well, people see through me and say, hey. This guy or this girl was not cut out to be this, and I know it. How did you deal with that and that immense pressure of, um, you know, meeting those expectations that you set for yourself or other people set? How did you deal with the imposter syndrome? And do you have any strategies behind that? I mean, 
I think at the time, I remember I, I freaked out and I, I spoke to my boss and I said, you know, there's, there seems to be like there's an expectation. And I think the way I was sort of portrayed in the media also was sort of like, oh, you know, she came up with this idea when she was just a sophomore. Like she must be like this prodigy. She's the next big thing in cancer research. And I was like, I'm not really. And I like I and at that point, I wasn't even sure, like if there was going to be a second paper because we were still working on it. We were trying to figure out the direction. And I was just, you know, I was I I was beyond myself because I was like, I don't know. I don't want to disappoint people. I don't you know, I don't want people to think I'm a fraud either. And then what I realized, like talking to him and then also talking to my friends where, you know, I can't put those expectations on myself. I have to learn to sort of do the best work I can. Like whatever work that I'm doing now may not ever be as cool as the work that I did previously. I might be a one-trick pony, but, uh, you know, at least I'm doing good work. I'm doing honest work. And that was sort of how I came to terms with it. And at the end of the day, I also made conscious decision to say you know I'm going to be myself I'm going to talk about it very honestly and uh, you know just not make you know sort of a big deal out of it in terms of how uh, people you know want to say it's a cure for cancer people want to say it's you know a huge breakthrough that it's going to change the field and I'm like maybe it will but you know obviously there needs to be more work done and there needs to be more testing and we will see what comes out of this in the next few years. Yeah. And, um, you know, the other thing that's been on my mind that I'd love to hear your thoughts behind is you publish this paper and you see a ton of media attention and, and, you know, direction and and people um, curious and excited about the work. It's like honestly, you know, someone winning the World Cup or winning the Super Bowl and then deciding, hey, how do I what do I do next? How do I, what do I do from here? Did you have those conversations with yourself and like, okay, now what? Yes. I mean, yeah. I, and I, you know, the paper came out at a time where I was trying to figure out what was the next step in my career as well. And I was interviewing um, at different institutions and I was trying to figure out like where I want to go. Um, at that time, I was also thinking about, do I want to move back to Sri Lanka um, you know, to be closer to my family and all that. And, um, you know, what? after doing interviews, after talking to many people, I was like, I can't let sort of this, you know, this thing that's behind me now, which is, you know, all this media attention, all this attention from all over the world, sort of let me sort of skew my perspective in terms of what I want to do moving forward. Like, what do I like to do? What are the questions I want to ask? And um, what I did was I asked myself, what do I want to study? And I said, I want to study understudied diseases. I want to study diseases that people don't really pay attention to. And I was like, what aspect do I want to study? And I was like, well, metastases and relapse are the reasons that current cancer therapeutics fail. And so I want to go into that field where I can study that particular part of the disease and sort of contribute to the understanding and hopefully down the line contribute to the development of better therapeutics so we can actually improve patient outcomes. And that has sort of been my motivation moving forward. Um, For the most part, 
I like to think that I like to block out the noise. Um, I don't Good. pay a lot of I don't pay a lot of attention. Like I think I think it's wonderful that people are interested. People want to learn more, and you know I get all these wonderful media opportunities. Uh, but then I try to sort of distance myself from it a little bit too, uh, in terms of the commentary that people make about it. Um, just because I think you know with my immediate team of mentors and my peers. I think their opinions matter more in terms of sure. the direction of my career um, rather than sort of what people expect me to do next. Yeah, no, that's a great piece of advice of just blocking out the noise and, you know, having your small tribe of people that you care about and you think highly of and let that guide you. So I, I really like, uh, you know, your mentality behind that. Um, and so tell me, Hassini, are you fulfilled with the research you're doing now? I know you mentioned childhood leukemia earlier in the podcast, but how are you feeling overall about your research? And do you have that same sort of excitement that you had all those years ago when this idea first came for your first uh, idea behind uh, behind the cancer cells research? I think I am really excited about the new questions that I'm asking and the new techniques that I get to use and also the new people that I'm working with. Um, yeah. I think I'm a little less naive um, uh, than I was uh, when I was a sophomore in college. So I'm more realistic when it comes to my approach and sort of my timelines and all that stuff. Um, so I think I know more and... Uh, but in terms of the work, um, I love it. You know, I, I always, even today, I made this joke, you know, at any point, if I feel like I don't love it, then I'm actually just going to quit and, you know, decide to work at a department store um, so, I get a, <laughs> so that I get the employee discount when I go shopping. Um, what department so, store? <laughs> um, Macy's. Macy's? Nice. <laughs> because there's a, Macy, there's a Macy's close by to where I live now, so... You know, it, it would just be an easy commute to work and then, you know, an easy commute back. Uh, that's I think you might be of, a little bit overqualified if you apply. They say, hey, wait, do you have a doctorate? <laughs> I mean, I'll just be like, you know, I can hang clothes on a rack and I'm very right. organized. I will organize all this stuff for you. So please do hire me. Don't don't look at anything else. Um, that's funny. And actually, I, I also like would like an employee discount. So... <laughs> That's that's too funny. Uh, um, and, but and, yeah, go ahead. for me, it's for me, it's always, you know, and I, maybe I have this luxury that a lot of people don't have. But for me, it's always I've always been like, if I don't love it, then I'm going to walk away, and that's always that's sort of the mentality that I've developed. Um, but I don't know if other people sort of have that luxury that I have. Yeah. Yeah. And um and I understand that you are at um Stanford, correct? So you made the the switch from the East Coast to the West Coast. Um has uh how was the transition being at Stanford? Have they supported you the same way that your mentors and your bosses have at Johns Hopkins or has it been a different environment that you've had to adjust to? It's been a bit of both. You know, I came into Stanford knowing that, you know, uh, I'm completely unknown and that I would have to prove myself to some degree. Uh, but at the same time, like when I came in, I had sort of, you know, this understanding with the people that I was working with that I would, you know, be able to do some of the things that I wanted to do. 
um, I think adjusting to a whole new group of people and just learning what everybody's sort of role is in the institution was definitely an adjustment. Uh, um, but, you know, once I learned, I got to know the people and I learned their roles and how they can support me. It's just been it's been smooth sailing. I have uh, no uh, I have no regrets, really. I mean, the one thing I will complain about is uh, the Northern California weather. And uh, <laughs> really, cause, you know, everyone's like, oh, you're in sunny California. And, like, this is a lie. People tell you lies to bring you to San Francisco because it's always <laughs> cold. It's even cold in the summer. It's like 50s yeah. in the summer. You have to wear a jacket all year round. And I'm just like, this is all lies. Everybody lied to me saying That's it's going right. to be warm and beautiful. And it's not. Yeah, my brother lives in San Francisco and he mentioned the same thing. He moved. We lived uh, in Texas for a long time and uh, he moved to San Francisco and he said, wow, I can't believe how many jackets I have to bring up here. Like I'm wearing a sweater permanently through the July, yeah. in the, yes. especially in the nights. <laughs> yes, it is true. And yeah, I think that's the biggest lie about moving to at least San Francisco, um, which people don't know about. And I hope people know now through this podcast. That's right. Well, we'll, we'll definitely publicize that through that. Yeah. Um, cool. I, I want to also um, talk up a little bit about um, the future, and uh, you mentioned, you know, you have, you know, started work on on um, you know a new project in, in in Stanford, and you're excited about it. But you know, because you're so close to the industry and and close to the cutting edge of, of cancer research, can you tell us a little bit more about what you're excited about that really gets you pumped up about cancer research or cancer therapies in the next ten to fifteen years? Like, what's on the horizon that people can be like, whoa? get a sneak preview for well there are so many things like you know at least from the work I do now um, you know there are so many promising therapies that are in the pipeline uh, immunotherapy is a big sort of movement in terms of therapies um, and I think recently I think it was like a few a couple of days ago where uh, lawmakers decided that they were going to put this po- they were implementing this policy where uh, pharmaceutical companies now have to test uh, therapeutics not only for adult cancers but also for pediatric cancers. Mm. And so the fact that like these laws are coming in where now there's a more push towards testing in pediatric cancers, which is great, which means that a lot of like sort of uh, these therapies that we're developing for children can also maybe be implemented in adults. And, you know, we see sort of um, the promising results that are coming out of uh, Stanford. And, you know, there's going to be a huge push towards like using immunotherapy more and more um, as we move forward. And, you know, in pediatric cancers, especially, we've had such great success with immunotherapies. And I think that will be slowly translated into other types of cancers as well. Um, I mean, Also, we have to talk about like the incredible technologies that are being Mm -hmm. developed that are supporting, you know, our efforts to develop better therapeutics, you know, Uh, especially at Stanford. There are so many new techniques that we can use to sort of further our understanding on how cells behave. And that is, um, you know, something really exciting. And also like the different perspectives that people are bringing in. I read a review the other day by this scientist who lives in the UK who was talking about the connection between uh, your gut microbiome and like how children get cancer. 
So basically, um, the mother's uh, microbiome translates into deciding whether your child gets cancer or not. Whoa. And I'm just like, that is like the craziest. I, I mean, I've read some of his work and I've just been like blown away by how he makes these connections. But the fact that, you know, he can sort of make a connection between your microbiome and the fact that you could possibly get cancer is just it just blows my mind. But yeah. it makes sense because our body is an ecosystem. Our body right. is, you know, it has like all these like, you know, processes that are interconnected, you know, from your foot to your head. And, you know, so like, why not? Why wouldn't this microbiome play a role in how healthy you are? Yeah. Yeah, everything is interdependent, and yeah, but just but so just saying how it's connected, like to make that like um, mental jump to combine. Hey, your biome be affecting how you develop cancer as a child. Like that's that's something that I've never heard. That must have been um, very interesting for you to read. Yeah, no, it was it was definitely very interesting to read, and just you know the uh, the fact that the idea is so bold. You know, maybe maybe he's completely wrong or maybe he's completely right. But to make bold statements like that is something I admire very much. You know, I think sometimes we dismiss these ideas because, you know, they're too bold. Um, And sometimes you just have to like be like, okay, it's bold, like prove it. And Yeah. uh, yeah, so I think there are so many things to be excited about in terms of where this field is headed and, uh, you know, what's going to come out in the next couple of years. That's awesome. That is so cool to hear. And I can't wait to you know, stay close to the research and, you know, see, see some of the great stuff that comes out from you as well as some of the other researchers. But um, for our last 15 minutes, Hassani, I want to uh, switch to some of our rapid fire questions. And um, these are questions that we ask all our guests uh, on the podcast, just because we've gotten some amazing answers and really, you know, gets a little perspective on on what you do or or, or feel and that are important to you outside of your work. So, um, I'd love to start by asking you: um, Is there a purchase of a hundred dollars or less that has most improved your life in the past six months? Can you think of anything? I think my Fitbit, um, your Fitbit. I, my Fitbit, I did not, I had a Fitbit years ago and it broke and then I never replaced it because my phone sort of took over its role of counting my steps. And then I got the new, I got the Fitbit Versa last month cool. and, um, just like how it keeps track of my heart rate. And like, now I like actually have to log in how much of water I drink and the calories I take in. And I'm just like, wow, you know, I thought I was healthy, but now I'm just like, <laughs> at this new sort of, I have this new health kick and I'm just like, yeah, got to drink those 75 ounces of water and like, right. you know, got to get my it's, steps in. It's funny you say that. Cause it's almost like when you first started as a researcher and now where you are now, you're like, Oh man, I was so naive before. It's kind of the same thing when you start tracking calories and doing the same thing. You're like, whoa, things are a lot different from when I, when I first started getting into this. So that's funny that I, that, that you made that connection. That's, that's cool. Yeah. I, my wife has a Fitbit and she loves it too. And really changed yeah. the game on, on fitness, yeah. but um, cool. And this, the second question I have is, um, is there a movie or book that has the most impact on you that you either 
um, love to love to give as a gift or that you think about when when people ask you for recommendations? I love the book Option B by Sheryl Sandberg. Um, I I read it I read it as it came out, um, and it was sort of in this transitionary period of my life where I uh, went through this really difficult breakup. And, uh, you know, I know her book talks about loss and everybody thinks it's in terms of loss of, you know, a loved one, you know, in terms of death. But, you know, she basically talked, you know, in her book, she talks about losing, you know, a loved one, a friendship, you know, uh, you know, going through a breakup or even like losing an opportunity, like a career opportunity. And I think there are so many lessons to be learned from that book and just how to face, you know, these disappointments that come your way and how to overcome it and rise above it and move forward in your life. So that is one of my favorite books. And um, I I recently read uh, When Breath Becomes Air uh, by Paul Kalinithi and uh, loved the book. You know, his perspective on life and you know disease and you know um just everything was just incredible and uh, that was one of one of the one of the nicest books i've read in the past probably year that's wonderful that those are both two great books i i've read option b but i haven't read the other one so i will definitely it's it's it a wonderful list. book actually the funny way that i you know learned about Paul, uh, Dr. Paul Kalinithi's book uh, was because I had to go to urgent care one day and um, his wife, Lucy Kalinithi, was my uh, doctor. No and way. she was she was she was incredible. I had no I, at that point I had no idea who she was, um, but uh, she was incredible. She was such a good doctor, and I was like, okay, I want to make Lucy my permanent, you know, primary physician. And so I googled her, and then all this stuff about this book came up. And I was like, hold on, what is this? And so obviously I you know stalked her, and then I found out about the book, and I was like, no way, like. You know, so I read the book and it was, yeah, it was incredible. That's awesome. That's a really cool story. Is she your primary care doctor? I'm just curious. <laughs> no, she's not because she's, she just does urgent care. So I don't oh, okay. think she's going to become my primary care, which is, I think it's for the best. Cause I think now I'm like, when I see her, I'm just going to be starstruck and I'm going to ask her so many questions about the book that, you know, it probably won't be healthy for a <laughs> patient physician relationship. So it's probably for right. the best. That's funny. Um, cool. Um, the the other question I have for you, Hansini, um, is um, is if you could give any advice to an up and coming South Asian person who's interested in research or or interested in you know cancer um, cancer cells or doing more stuff in in research, what advice would you give him or her, and why would you give that advice? I mean, I think I would say um, be brave. You know, I think, you know, even in my head and even now I sort of have this tiny voice in my head saying you can't do that. You can't email this person. You can't, um, you know, go up to this person and talk to this person. I think it's an insecurity that, you know, maybe not only Southeast Asian people have, but all people have. Yeah. And I'm like, it's always just overcoming that voice saying that you can't do it and going ahead and doing it. 
um, I always say, you know, if I send this email, if I go and talk to this person, I have nothing to lose, even if they say no to me. Uh, you know, there are a million people you can do research with. And so, you know, this might be your favorite person. And if he or she says no, there's always your second favorite person. Yeah. Uh, and then just be persistent, be hardworking, you know, and at the end of the day, do what you love. I think sometimes uh, when when people come from the cultures we come from, especially the brown culture, where there's such an emphasis on being a doctor, lawyer, engineer, or, you know, mm-hmm. following like mm-hmm. the traditional careers, it's always... It, it's always important to do what you love. If research is what you love to do, then do it because you will do it with a certain amount of passion that will make you successful. But if, you know, you prefer to sort of be a dancer or, you know, an interior designer, then that's what you should do. Because by forcing yourself to do something you don't love, you're going to make yourself unhappy and you're not going to reach the success that you necessarily want to reach. I love that. That is such a powerful statement to be brave, be persistent and just do something that you love and um you know don't don't let the expectations of our society of of your parents of anyone that that you don't care about affect you. So I I love 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 that piece of advice. Um and kind of flipping this the script like is there a South Asian person that you look up to that's in your field or maybe outside your field um, as someone that, that is successful that you said, Hey, I'd love, I'd love to be this person at some point in my career or at some point in my life. Um, I think in terms of academics, there are so many cool uh, South Asian academics um, who are some of, uh, some of whom I have had the pleasure of working with and talking to and collaborating with. Uh, but I'm going to say um, I'm a huge, like, Deepika Padukone fan. Um, <laughs> and it's not just the movies. I actually don't think I've wa- I probably watched one or two of her movies. But I think what she stands for, how she presents herself. You know, sure. I like I admire how brave she was when she came out and uh, she talked about her depression and anxiety and I know in our field, you know, in the acad- in the world of academia, depression and anxiety is something that affects a lot of people and it's not something that's talked about. And so for her to sort of come out and talk about it very openly on a public platform, I thought was very brave. Um, and, you know, how she, you know, talks about the importance of sports in her life. And um, I think she does an incredible job using her public platform to sort of make a change in her industry and also make a change in sort of every like the people the lives of people who follow her and so she's definitely somebody I I look up to and I think uh, you know would love to meet someday got it got it so if we ever have her on the podcast I'll uh be sure to connect you guys. <laughs> oh my god, I would, I would like die. I'd be like, I don't know what to say to you. I'm sorry, I haven't watched all your movies. Yeah. Or you should yeah. at least give me like a month in advance so that I could watch all her movies, and then be like, yeah, yeah, I'm your biggest fan. <laughs> right, right. I'll give you a, a one month head. <laughs> I'll probably be starstruck as well. So we'll both be in the same camp. <laughs> yeah, I think. Yeah, but uh, you know, like, I like if you forget the movie star aspect of her, which is kind of difficult to forget. Get. but you know everything she's done and the platform sure. she has and what she stood for and what she's talked about i think that uh, is incredible in itself 
Yeah, I, I agree. I 100% agree. Um, so I'd love to end it on uh, this podcast on if you have any final asks for the audience, anything you'd like to leave them um, for just uh, things as a takeaway, um, Hasini, because you know, you've said so much great stuff, uh, but I'd love to, to see if you have anything just you'd like to leave the audience with. I think um, I'd sort of like to leave the audience with by saying just be kind to, you know, everybody that you sort of interact with, um, because I think everybody is sort of struggling through this life and with something. And it's important for us to be kind and um, nice to each other and sort of help people out and I know um, for us as South Asians, we have like a very strong community where uh, we can rely on each other. But I think we need to sort of extend that to the rest of the country and the rest of the world and, uh, you know, have that translate into all aspects of uh, the society. I love that. Be kind, be brave, be persistent. I'm gonna put that on a on a wall somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I I uh, probably stole that from somebody somewhere that I probably saw somewhere. Um, I, it's uh, a great phrase. It's a great great phrase. <laughs> yeah. Um, cool. So uh, where uh, Hassani, where can people find you if people want to find out more about um, your your life or get in contact with you for any reason? What are the best ways for people to get in touch? So I am on social media. I am on Twitter and I do, I have a public Facebook page. Well, it's my personal Facebook page, but it's, you know, there are public posts and stuff going on, which I do post a lot about science. I post about, you know, my life and also things I'm passionate about, like uh, animal conservation and uh, sometimes about politics in Sri Lanka. Um, so they can definitely follow me on um, social media. And uh, yeah, and I am pretty responsive for the most part. And so they can contact me through social media. I don't have a personal website. Everybody keeps asking me why I don't, but I just <laughs> don't. I feel like I'm not celebrity enough to have a website, you know? <laughs> right, right. Hey, but hey, maybe after your second paper, they'll force you to get one. <laughs> oh, maybe, maybe. I mean, hopefully someday a lab website, but... Uh, That's right. That's right. You know, I don't know about a personal website. We'll see. Got it. Baby steps. Baby steps in getting over this imposter syn syndrome and, That's right. you know, embracing sort of uh, who I am now and uh, I guess the appeal I have. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, great. Hassani, thank you so much. Um, this has just been a, a amazing interview. I've had my, my note page is full of all the, the things that you've talked <laughs> about and um, we're just very fortunate to have you on. Thank you for your, your wisdom and um, and your, your continued research into things that um, that matter to a lot of people. So I appreciate you being on South Asian Stories. Thank you for having me. Hey guys, it's Samir again. If you'd like to hear more amazing stories on South Asians around the world, please check out SouthAsianStoriesPodcast.com and subscribe to our email list. That's SouthAsianStoriesPodcast.com.
Thanks a lot. See you next time.